TUC Radio, Time of Useful Consciousness. Will modern civilization be the death of us? Professor William Weiss. Does our modern techno-industrial society destroy the biophysical basis of our existence? Bill Weiss is a population ecologist, ecological economist, and professor emeritus of British Columbia's School of Community and Regional Planning. He asks the question, why humanity has not responded in over 50 years to warnings about rising greenhouse gases and heat, overexploitation of oceans, forests, soils, and water, and species extinction. Professor Bill Weiss also challenges the over-optimistic problem solvers on their claim in their version of the Green New Deal that if we replace oil with solar, we can continue living much as we do today in an economy based on growth and consumption. Bill Weiss had been invited by the Institute on Religion in an Age of Science and the International Society for Science and Religion. They requested an answer to their question, Will modern civilization be the death of us? Here's Professor William Weiss. What I have to share with you is a kind of a personal journey, I suppose. It involves some philosophy, some economics, some ecology, and a variety of other disciplines. It's a kind of transdisciplinary look at what I call the human predicament. But I think we really are in a predicament of grand scale. The premise for my presentation is that the human enterprise is already in a state of what I would call ecological as well as cultural overshoot. And when we are in a state of overshoot, it means that the human enterprise is using natural resources, both renewable and non-renewable resources, and natural waste sinks faster than ecosystems can regenerate. And we are dumping wastes at rates far in excess of those which natural systems can assimilate and recycle. And the symptoms are, I suppose, the stuff of headlines. So greenhouse gases are accumulating. As a result, the climate is changing. The oceans are acidifying. Fresh waters are toxifying. The seas are overfished. Soils are eroding, etc., etc. We've all heard about these things. We've been hearing about them for 50 or 60 years. So it's been a real interest of mine to try to understand why it is that despite these extensive warnings of scientists, the cascade of data that these uh, things are happening, uh, we've tended to ignore them. So we've entered this period in our history of what I would call ecologically destructive, uneconomic growth. A tip of the hat to Herman Daly, one of the great ecological economists. Yes, the economy is growing, but arguably, if you look at this list of costs, which are not accounted for in our economic system, they exceed the benefits. And therefore, the growth that we're experiencing right now is indeed uneconomic. So overshoot is a term that I've used, and I, I want to give you some quantitative sense of just how great a, a problem this is. So if we look at the human ecological footprint, this is a tool that I've developed with my students over the last oh, 30 years or so, but we now have a very 
good metric by which we can trace all the material and energy flows through the human economy and trace these back to the land which either produces them or assimilates the wastes associated with their use and production. So basically, I would say the first question of human ecology is just how much of the Earth's surface is necessary to support just me in the style to which I am accustomed? And we can now answer that question for most of the world's countries. If you take this on the global scale, the total area of productive landscape and waterscape on the planet amounts to about 12.2 billion hectares. Right now, humans are using the Earth as if there were 20.5 billion hectares. So basically, we are using this planet as if it were about 60 to 70% larger than it actually is. Now, any school child would ask the obvious question, how can you be using a planet that's larger than one you live on? And the answer is because over the eons of time, nature has built up enormous natural capital, huge stocks of soil, of oil, natural gas, of fish stocks, forests, so on and so forth. Uh, we are using these then at a rate far in excess of their replacement rates. And we can be in this state of overshoot for a considerable period of time until, of course, we absolutely hit rock bottom. But the bottom line is that humans are consuming and dissipating the planet faster than nature can regenerate. And as the population grows, as per capita material consumption grows, this means that everybody is increasingly in competition with everyone else on the earth for a diminishing supply of biocapacity. Now, the obvious question is how can this be? I think we can boil this down to two basic factors. The first is a, a basic uh, human nature. It's our genetic predisposition, something we share with virtually every other species that's ever been studied on the planet. And that is that human beings, like all other species, have a tendency to expand. Our populations will expand to fill all accessible habitat, and we will use up all the available resources. Now, a unique quality of human beings, of course, is that through technology, we can constantly increase the availability of resources. We can mine ever uh, poorer sources of minerals, for example, because of improving technology and the refining and, and the concentration of those elements. So technology has given humans a huge leg up in this competitive struggle for the acquisition of resources. Now, the second factor is, is it's creative nurture. So the first factor had to do with nature, and here nurture comes into it. Uh, this is socialization of human beings. Human beings are unique in another way, and that is that we socially construct what we take to be reality. In other words, we socially construct perceptual lenses through which we view the rest of the world. And the problem is that the nature of those conceptual lenses determines the reality that we perceive. So every culture perceives reality in a slightly different way, having pre-constructed slightly different lenses. And it's extremely important to understand that well, this sounds like a kind of flaky concept. The reality is that social constructs are extremely powerful. And when you think about it, all of our traditional myths, our political ideologies, our uh, social and economic paradigms, even our cultural narratives are ultimately conceived by the human mind. They're shaped over time through human discourse and debate. And they ultimately become received wisdom. 
And that is our perception of the world. Now, the point really is, though, that not all of these social constructs can be equally valid. Some of them are nurturing of spirit, supportive of community, harmonious with nature, or otherwise adaptive. But others are positively hazardous, both to humankind and other life on Earth. And it doesn't really matter which of these holds at any particular time. The, the really key issue here is that people live out of their social constructs as if they, they were real. At the present time, I think it's fair to say that the whole of the world community is in the thrall of what we've called earlier in this discussion, a techno-industrial narrative. Our neoliberal economics and that techno-industrial narrative tend to reinforce our innate expansionism. So in many respects, from the perspective of sustainability, we're in the worst of all possible worlds because we have evolved a natural predisposition to expand and, and consume resources to the limit. And we now have a, a social construct on top of that, which reinforces that natural tendency. So if you think of our neoliberal market economics, it promotes self-interest and efficiency. These are the two quintessential variables, if you will, in utility maximization, which really means accumulation of stuff. It considers the market, a theoretically perfect market, as the arbiter of all social values. Uh, government should stay out of these affairs. The market is, is the real place in which decisions should be made. And this really means, and it's a very important point, that ethical and moral considerations are disallowed. Economics does not deal in ethical or moral considerations. So that family and community are not part of our market calculus. Compassion for others is also an extra market characteristic. At bottom then, our neoliberal economic paradigm assumes unlimited economic progress propelled by boundless technological innovation. And one of the most ebullient expressions of this was from Dr. Julian Simon, Professor Simon at the University of Maryland, who said, we have in our hands now the technology to feed, clothe, and supply energy to an ever-growing population for the next seven billion years. Now that's an arithmetically challenged concept, but it's the kind of thing that people want to hear. It's the kind of thing we'd like to believe because if you have this as a major component, as a major plank in your socially constructive political platform, for example, then you can dismiss concerns about the environment or inequality as non-entities. These will be resolved over time as the economy grows, as we become richer and richer and more and more stuff becomes available. So these are very, very powerful ideas and they are what's uh, driving the planet at the present time. Now, when you combine our base nature, this predisposition to expand with our modernist nurture, what we have found in the recent past, and by that I mean just the last couple of hundred years, is a mind-blowing rate of geometric growth. Consider this. The human species in its modern form has been around for 200, 300,000 years. Let's just take 200,000 years as an easy starting point. So it took about 200,000 years of human history for a population to reach its first billion early in the 1800s, so in the 19th century. But in the intervening 200 years, the population expanded an additional seven and a half fold, one thousandth of much time, uh, we had a sevenfold expansion and we will top 7.8 billion people in 2020. Meanwhile, 
the gross world product, the real uh, value of the economy and essentially consumption has increased a hundredfold and per capita consumption uh, by a factor of, of 13 increasing to 25 in rich countries. So there's been this enormous expansion in just 200 years, one one thousandth of much times it took to reach the first billion, we expanded to almost 8 billion today and increased our ecological footprint by a factor of 100. Meanwhile, of course, the earth didn't get any larger. Now, the real explosion began early in the 19th century with the advent of extensive use of fossil fuel. And this is an extremely important thing to keep in mind in our present era. Fossil fuel is the means by which humankind has obtained all of the other resources needed to grow the population and to create the infrastructure, our cities, our automobiles, all the toys and, and infrastructure of modern civilization would not be possible in the absence of abundant cheap energy. So what fossil fuel did essentially was liberate humankind from natural negative feedbacks. Uh, so a negative feedback is something that represses the natural tendency to grow. So in the absence of adequate food and resources, in the presence of disease and so on and so forth, the human population was kept well below uh, the potential of its uh, exponential growth. Once fossil fuel came into the picture, we literally took the, I suppose, the cap off the bottle and enabled us to exercise for the first time in our own evolutionary history, the full uh, biological potential to grow at an exponential rate. Now, the point that we really should take from this, however, is that it's only been the last seven to perhaps 10 generations of human beings who have experienced sufficient growth or technological change in their lifetimes, even to notice it. So if you were to go back, say a couple of thousand years, you might live to be a hundred, some people did, but you wouldn't notice any particular change in the course of your lifetime the technology in place at the time of your birth would be the same as that at the time of your death. Uh, today, everything's changed. Almost everything that we take to be modern didn't exist when I was born back in the early 1940s. So the pace of change is absolutely astronomical. And we tend to take this for granted without really consciously absorbing the inordinate changes that have taken place in the last little while. Most remarkably, humans alive today, the, the perhaps the seventh or eighth generation who've experienced this, take two and three percent per year growth to be the norm. So our generation and perhaps a few generations before us think growth is a norm, when in fact uh, this is the single most abnormal period in human history, and it is the period that we take to be the norm. And it's not just the human population that expanded. Capita incomes have increased by a factor of 13 in just the last 100 years or so. And that's 25 fold in rich countries like the United States and Canada. And so with the population, we've seen a much larger expansion of consumption. Now, one of the interesting, I suppose, facts about exponential growth, we have a constant doubling time and anything that happens in the course of one of those doubling times is equal to the sum of everything that occurred in the previous collection of doubling times. So this means that 
one half of all the fossil fuels and many other resources ever used by human beings have been consumed in just the past 30 years in the most recent doubling of our uh, technological society. So what we have seen is an incredible expansion in the rate at which human beings are exploiting the planet. And many people who are concerned about ecological problems or the environmental issues are convinced that technological efficiency will get us off the hook. But I have to point out that it's been during a period of unprecedented improvements in efficiency, both in technology and in economics, that this most explosive period of human growth has taken place. It's an utter myth to assume that efficiency gains are going to lead to conservation. In fact, history shows us that with increasing efficiency, we often see a reduction in prices, an increase in income, you have more money chasing fewer goods and services, and so of course consumption increases in marked step with, with efficiency. Now, one of the major constraints that we have to deal with is that we are wedded intellectually to this neoliberal economic paradigm. And yet the neoliberal growth models contain absolutely no useful information whatsoever about the structural and dynamic properties of ecosystems. The fact that they are interdependent, that they behave with lags and thresholds, all sorts of discontinuous behaviors, there are irreversibilities and so on in the ecosystems. And in addition, the economic models have very little important to say about the social systems with which the economy interacts in the real world. So it's almost as if we're trying to fly planet Earth with the intellectual equivalent of a 1955 Volkswagen Beetle driver's manual. There's simply nothing useful in the model that tells us how to manage the macro system, the ecological system, the ecosphere and the social systems that we're trying to go uh, manage here. So what could possibly go wrong in those circumstances? And the answer of course is plenty. And one of the best known symptoms is the increasing index of atmospheric carbon dioxide. This is a plot taken directly from the website of the Mauna Loa Observatory of the uh, National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Research Laboratory in, in Hawaii. But each year, the upticks are very slightly longer than the downticks. And so we see a steady increase in atmospheric carbon dioxide levels as a result. And right now we're about 48% above the pre-industrial atmospheric levels. This should be cause for major concern because human beings are changing the chemistry of the atmosphere. During this period from the 60s to the present day, what's that 60 years, we've seen something like uh, 34 climate conferences, a half dozen major international agreements and so on none of which have had the slightest effect. You can't detect the advent of any of those uh, conferences, for example, or agreements ha as having any effect whatsoever on the uptick of carbon dioxide. With it, of course, we've seen an increase in global surface temperatures. There's another symptom I wanna pay a little bit of attention to, and that's the impact of human beings on other forms of life on the planet. And one of the best known, I suppose, are wild mammals. Most people are familiar with mammals. But if we go back again 10,000 years, wild mammals comprised over 99% of the total biomass, the sheer weight of mammals on Earth. And humans were much less than 1%. 
if we move forward to the present era, things have changed rather dramatically. We see that human beings now comprise the sheer weight of humans, that's all 7.8 billion of us, is now 32% of all the mammalian biomass on the planet. But in addition to humans, cattle now comprise uh, something like 45% of mammalian biomass. And other livestock kicks in another 22%. So together, humans and their domestic animal stock there's different estimates of this, but they're all 95 to 98% the total mammalian biomass on planet Earth. And that means that wild animals, the wild mammals that we see on such wonderful nature shows are reduced to living on the fringes. With the expansion of the human enterprise, particularly European humans into the Great Plains of North America, we've completely displaced the original inhabitants, not only human inhabitants, but other wildlife inhabitants. We've replaced their natural fodder, the natural prairie grasses and so on, with wheat, oat, barley, uh, canola, and so on and so forth to feed that mass of human beings and our livestock. So what we have seen over the past 150 or 200 years in particular, with this massive expansion of humankind, is literally the competitive displacement of other forms of life from the planet. The mass of humans is literally displacing other people from their ecosystems, other species from their ecosystems as we expand. So what we find then is wisdom in this, uh, recognizing if we look at these data uh, for what they tell us, that some social constructs tend to be shared illusions. So the notion, for example, that one hears over and over again during elections, at least in, in my country, that we can have no conflict or we can have economic growth and expansion of the economy and a clean environment is uh, a myth, a shared illusion. Because what the data show is that contrary to this conventional political wisdom, there is an absolute conflict between the growth of the human enterprise and the protection of nature, the conservation of the environment. The continuous growth of the human enterprise on a finite planet necessarily means the displacement, sometimes to the point of extinction, of non-human species. But because this is what we do, modern humans are systematically destroying the biophysical basis of their own existence. Because we can't survive in the absence of wild nature. It is functional ecosystems and large-scale biophysical systems that provide the life support services upon which the human enterprise depends. Not just uh, humans, of course, but all other life on Earth as well. So we're trying to solve this problem. Uh, I suppose we can say that there's been an environmental movement for the past oh, at least 60 years uh, since uh, Rachel Carson's, I suppose many people attire Rachel Carson to the beginning of the environmental movement with the publication of her book, Silent Spring. But how do we attempt to solve the problem? Well, we solve it through our conventionally, socially constructed neoliberal economic growth lens. So in effect, the modernist solution is completely self-referencing. It cannot see outside of itself for other information to bring to bear on this problem. So that we attempt to solve the problem through precisely the processes that brought it to us in the first place. Similarly, climate change. 
everyone knows that climate change is potentially catastrophic. And we know also, at least by uh, publication of the IPCC panel on climate change by the Paris Accord in uh, 2015, that we need to reduce our carbon dioxide emissions by about 50% below 2010 levels in just the next 10 years. Okay, we need to achieve essentially complete decarbonization by 2050. Well, how might we go about that? And if we look at the major discussions around the planet, including those at the meetings of, uh, such as the Paris Accord, the politically acceptable solutions include any capital intensive investment, wind and solar power. In other words, we need to solve this problem through technology. We have to develop new means of extracting carbon from the atmosphere. Anything that will maintain the existing growth oriented economic order. Okay. Serious conservation, demand reduction, lifestyle changes, more equitable distribution, and other social factors are simply not on the table. It's a technological solution derived and seen through our technologically uh, engineered uh, mythic construct that humankind is in control of this situation and can solve our problems through more of the same. Okay. In a sense, disaster policy is being designed to serve the capitalist growth economy. So that, quote, the latter becomes the solution to rather than the cause of the problem, as one very prominent political scientist recently put it. We are now at a point in the world where we have to seriously question the narrative that has brought us to this point of crisis which of course uh, re uh, requires that we recognize that we are in a point of crisis. We have to first of all acknowledge that we are part of nature, that nothing about our technological ingenuity separates us from our complete dependence on the natural world. This requires secondly, that we recognize limits to material growth, that on a finite planet, the human enterprise cannot expand indefinitely because the way we expand is by literally converting uh, the biosphere into humanness, into the bodies of human beings and the massive infrastructure uh, on our planet that supports humans and nothing else. We've become the largest geological force changing the face of the earth. The materials moved around uh, to create our cities, our highways, our vehicles, our toys and so on and so forth exceeds all the materials moved by nature through erosion and so on and so forth. We need to acknowledge that a new system is required to satisfy our need for love, for spiritual fulfillment, for community and ecological along with economic security. So we've really reached the juncture in our, I suppose, cultural evolution where we have to transcend techno-modernism this techno-industrial society that has brought us to the brink of collapse, I think literally, and we need to catalyze a personal to civilizational change, a transformation to a new way of being on earth in which we can live spiritually satisfying lives more equitably, but well within the biophysical means of the planet that supports us. And that's my main message today. It's time for change, and it's up to us to catalyze that change because our lives depend upon it. Thank you very much.
That was Professor William Rees. On July 2, 2020, he gave a talk to the International Society for Science and Religion. They decided that Bill Rees was most competent to answer their urgent question. Will modern civilization be the death of us? This is also the title of a YouTube entry that shows the full Zoom call of over an hour. You can hear this program again for free on TUC Radio's website, tucradio.org. Look at the newest programs or the podcast page. My name is Maria Gelarden. Thank you for listening. <laughs>